and welcome to this episode of Talking Total Talent. For this episode, you're in for a real treat on the topic of diversity and inclusion. I've got global thought leader Torin Ellis on the episode. He's a DNI strategist, but he's also been there and been a practitioner in the recruitment and talent position world. So he really brings to life all the ways that we can improve around DNI and diversity in recruiting. More importantly, he's going to challenge your status quo. So if you don't like feeling uncomfortable, this episode isn't for you. All right, without further ado, let's get stuck in. Hello, welcome to this episode of Talking Total Talent with me, your host, Ben Satchwell. And this week, I am very excited to be welcoming Torin Ellis. Torin, how are you? Uh, I couldn't be better. And I love the speed in which you say your name, like such a professional. And if you're not keenly listening, you'll miss that. And that probably is a great way for us to set up the conversation to keenly and intimately listen to our exchange. Amazing. Great. Let's okay. Let's let's get straight into it. But bef- before we do start, tell us a bit about you and your background. Yeah. So uh, I've been well. First of all, Torin Ellis, diversity strategist, risk mitigator. Uh, I'm a published author, formerly a serious XM host uh, of five years, Crazy and the King podcast co-host. Uh, I'm unapologetic in the DNI space, and honestly, the diversity, equity inclusion and belonging space. And I don't come to this work as an academic, as a person who read a bunch of white papers. I actually come to this work as a practitioner. Like I built a third party recruiting agency from 1998 up until 2012, where all we did was transactional recruiting, 150, $300,000, $500,000 type roles. So I know how to build high performing teams. My passion and my focus is I just felt like we have we have only touched the surface of diversity and inclusion over the last 30, 40, maybe even 50 years. That's disappointing, but it's not something that we can't change. I'm dead set on making sure we change that. Epic. All right. So we're focusing this episode on uh, diversity and recruiting. Give me, give me, based on all your experience, especially as a practitioner, give me a high level on, um, I suppose, the definition of what this is to you. Well, I mean, when we say what this is to me, recruiting for me has always been and will always be, how do we assemble the best team? How do we put the best individuals in an organization? How do we make sure that those individuals are going to be developed, inspired, motivated, and provided the resources that they need to go out and do what they say that they can do and what the company positions them to do? So for me, it all comes together with how do you build high-performing teams? And where I think that we've missed the mark is we've just been a bit too complacent. We've been too comfortable. We've continuously gone to the same places, posted the same types of jobs, used the same HR technology. And in all of that, Ben, we're looking for some silver bullet. We're looking for that sprinkle of fairy dust to to help blow things open for us. Well, that might happen every once in a while. It's kind of like the lottery ticket. You might win but you're absolutely going to lose and spend and spend and spend if if that's what you're waiting for. So for me, I like to change the game and I don't want to rely only on the lottery ticket. I don't want to rely only on those practices that we've had. I want to get a bit creative in how do we do something different? How do we create new relationships? How do we leverage technology differently? How do we ask different questions of, let's say for instance, the data 
that we've been looking at. It's how do we do this work differently? Because what we've been doing has not served us all that well. Why? So, uh, and, and they're very different issues, so I'm not making them comparable, but if let's take working remotely as an example. So I'm here in my, in my home office as we talk, right? And I used, I used to go to the CBD here five days a week. And um, it took a health pandemic to change skeptics around working remotely. And I can only speak from my limited experience and the reading I do around it, but it's worked great. So it's been fantastic. You know, people have had challenges because of the pandemic, but at the same time, there's been benefits around working remote. But it took that trigger moment. Um, you, you just mentioned 30, 40, 50 years. We haven't made much progress around the, the DNI side of things, which, um, you know, my prep for this, I wholeheartedly agree. We can't really wait for a trigger moment for this topic, can we? Um, so, on a high level, what's it going to take for companies to take strides forward? Yeah, well, well the first thing that it's going to take is we have to cha challenge and change our relationship with power. I'm going to use your example. In your example, you said that we were able to, to move on a dime. It was the pandemic. It was the trigger that got us to understand, wow, wait a minute, this remote working thing is not all that bad. And coupled with the gig economy that we are in, in many parts of the world, it actually ended up being an okay scenario, at least for those of us who could do that. There were some people that had to be on premise because of technologies and systems and security and data. I get it. There were some people that had to be on premise because, you know, they're a frontline individual. It's kind of hard to provide healthcare, touching a person and you can't touch them. It's kind of hard to load groceries when you are not there to. So, so we, we understand that some people had to be there. But if we shift our relationship with power, then we're not going to necessarily be sitting around waiting for these smart people to tell us everything. You see, we're smart. And what I don't believe we've done enough of, we've not challenged the power structure enough. We haven't challenged the power structure enough that, look, I don't need to, in 2021, still be talking about a business case for diversity and inclusion. Boston Consulting Group, Catalyst, Kaleidoscope, uh, I, I mean, McKinsey, Deloitte, we have more reports than we can shake a stick at over the last 10 years. I don't need another report to prove to me as a leader that I should be considering diversity and inclusion. Challenge your relationship with power. And I think if more of us do that, and we do it in a way that it, it, it exhibits our business acumen, it exhibits our relationship and responsiveness in the marketplace. Listen, Ben, you know the work that you do. And I always tell people this, I give deference to the individual that I'm speaking to. So if I'm on a stage and I'm talking to 10,000 people, 1,000 people, or I'm in a private event, like what 100 people, I give deference to the people that are listening. I never challenge whether or not they are good at what they do. I always challenge their intention. That's what I'm challenging. It's will versus skill for me. I, your skill is great, but do you have the will to do DNI? Do you have the will to say to your leader, we don't need to go to that school anymore and recruit. We've been recruiting for that school for 30 years. They know who we are. If we don't go to that school ever again, at least for the next five years, they're still going to send their students to us because they know who we are. 
Let's go to these five schools over here where we've never been before. Let's start to germinate a new relationship, marinate a new relationship. We don't need to post on this job site anymore. Let's use this one. Let's not be afraid to take some risk. That's what the pandemic did. And I hope that it, you know, long answer, Ben, but I just hope that the pandemic is that signal for us that we can interrupt power and get a different result. I love that. And uh, let me <clears throat> let me dig a bit deeper on it. So when we talk about power, are you talking about an external power or are you talking about internally within our own mind and shattering the mental model? I'm, I'm mostly talking about an external power. You know, there's that architecture of decision-making. You know, there's that org chart that we have to go through. You know, we have to get things signed off on before we can make investments. We have to get th things signed off on before we can go certain places or before we can create new relationships. So I'm, I'm always talking about that external power structure, you know, and, and what I want is for individuals to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. You see the thermometer takes the uh, uh, temperature in the room. The thermostat sets the temperature in the room. So if I'm going to be a great sourcer and diversity and inclusion is important to my organization, I'm going to set the thermostat on how we do our sourcing strategy. If I'm going to be a recruiter who really supports and believes in our DEIB strategy, I'm going to set the thermostat for how I curate my um, candidate slates. And I could go on and on and on. We got too many thermometers sitting among us. I need some thermostats. You've just given me the best title for a podcast. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Let's, um, let's go into the weeds a bit. Um, I was I was looking around strategies and and uh, around this and um, what's what's the go with some job ads for example are they tr so for talent acquisition specialists or recruiters are they actually trained with diversity in mind is it an education issue for the, those practitioners doing the the recruiting so training training is subjective yeah so, uh, because again you can take a course off of YouTube and to some degree you could be trained. I think most recruiters and sourcers these days understand how to put Boolean strings together. And in many ways, that's about all the training you need is can you get on that computer and can you identify through a string of, you know, commands, if you will, can we start to unearth, you know, individuals that we've not spoken with before? So I think that in many ways, Ben, most are trained or have some degree of training mm -hmm. i think not enough are perhaps mixing in certification because there's a difference between certification and training training allows me to kind of sit in the back of the room you put the video on i can be on my mobile device doing whatever it is that i'm doing flipping through a magazine eh, i'm not paying attention but if i got to test out on it if i have to certify that i captured the information and then prepare to act on and redistribute that information, then I might pay a different attention. So I think too many organizations put emphasis on training and not enough emphasis on certification and training and real life experience. Okay, that's, that's, that's an awesome answer too. So, um, and, and saying, saying in and around the practitioner level, just, just for a minute now, um, What's your thoughts on, and, and you took the, where this question comes from, sorry, I'll give it the context, is you mentioned around, if we always go to this one school, they'll know us in five years. So we go to these five schools and they'll get to know us. Um, 
So set, it feels semi-loaded, but what's your views on going to where the diverse candidates are and, and evolving your employer brand message or, or whatever it is to show that DNI component of your organization? Can you give us any practical tips for the listeners around that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you must fish where the fish are, you know, and, and that, you know, provided that that analogy is acceptable, you you should go where you know those uh, individuals are. But what I often tell people, I do a keynote presentation titled Everybody Wants Ice Cream. And what I'm trying to get across in that presentation is everybody wants ice cream. Whether you are a heterosexual white male or an LGBTQ individual or person with a disability, Muslim, Protestant, it doesn't matter. Everybody, for the most part, wants ice cream. So go in places where you're going to find that overlooked talent. The challenge is not so much so that we are not qualified as a black man. The challenge is you've continued to overlook me. You've continued to go and look in the places where you've been most comfortable. You continue to have relationships and go to nonprofit engagements and philanthropic endeavors and collegiate academic campuses where you feel comfortable. You don't know what it's like and or are not willing to subject yourself to a scenario, situation or an event where you're uncomfortable, where you are the only one. Most white men are not going to stand in a room full of a bunch of black men networking. They're just uncomfortable. Yet we do it all the damn time. Yeah. All the time. And I'm not making one scenario better than the other. I'm just simply saying I have no problem going to a networking event. And I know that I'm the only black person in the room. I have no problem going to client meetings and I look around the room and I'm the only black person in the room and I happen to be working on the diversity strategy. I'm comfortable. I'm cool. I'm confident. I know who I am. So you can put me in a, a, a lion's den and I'm coming out a lion. I'm cool wherever you insert me. You got to have that same confidence about who you are. If you are an individual who does not, have, I mean, you are part of a, a business unit or department and you don't have representation, then damn it, it should be important, an imperative that you all go where the talent is. It's, it's so poignant the way you point that out. So it's like, the, it's, an it's an education piece as, as with, with everything. Um, so we're doing that podcast for the point of education. Like where, where as a broader industry, can we make more noise to um, raise the profile of this conversation? And what I mean by that is have genuine conversations. So not um, flashy marketing literature that uh, puts a sticker and makes it look like we're doing something about it, but actually talk about it to uh, create a behavior change. Yeah, if I heard you correctly, you said, what industry can we do more of this conversation in? And uh, I'd so, say all of Yeah, sorry. What, as, as an industry is in recruitment and TA, what can we do more to help our industries? Sorry to clarify. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for the clarification, Ben. So the first thing we, will, we should do is, as I always say, number one, find your voice. I said a moment ago, I want thermostats. I don't want thermometers. We need more people that are willing to speak up in their organizations. If you see that something is missing, someone is missing, a group is missing. If you see microaggressions, bias, prejudice, racism, structural impediments, if you see things that are happening that are impediments to our doing what we say is important, then you have to speak up. Progress requires sacrifice. So you might lose something. 
you might be the individual that raises your voice and then you now become the person sort of with a target on. But if you want progress, you're going to have to sacrifice something, period. Number two, we should know exactly where our business unit department and team is in business. Every requisition isn't the same. If I take a requisition for a software developer and I'm inside of a hyper growth company, that software developer operates and moves differently than a software developer in a mature company versus one that's in continuous improvement versus one that's on a decline or one that's in transformation stage. Imagine businesses that were accustomed to, let's say, making sneakers or jumpsuits. And last year during the triggering event, they switched immediately, lipstick, perfume, they switched immediately and started making masks. That's a totally different transformation. Your software developer may be good in this environment, but may not be ready for this transformation. The speed in which we have to operate, the volume in which we have to operate, the nuance in which we have to cut corners. So you got to know what stage your business unit, your department, your team is in so that you can look at a requisition and say, okay, this is the type of person that I need. And then let's put some contextual layer of diversity and intersectionality on top of that. It changes each requisition. Third and final thing, tactical execution. Once I have a strategy and I know where I am, well, then how am I going to get the job done? What resources do I need? What collaboration uh, partners do I need? What strategic alliances should I be looking at? What knowledge do I have right here? What knowledge do you have been that I need to uh, tap into? What knowledge is external from the organization that will help influence my search? Now the tactical piece comes in and I got to be willing to put the, the, the right, I would say pressure. I would say the right component of capability and competency when I bring that together for tactical bearing. So empowerment, strategic exploration, tactical execution. And that, um, that links quite nicely because, so unrecorded conversations I have with TA professionals, I'm going to throw around a few bits now that I talk to them privately about. So in a de-identified way, so I have the luxury of being able to share that. Um, tactically, what's your view around referral programs uh, in relation to diverse candidates? Part of the process. You know, and again, you look at it and say to yourself, all right, wait a minute, Torn, all you're doing is sitting in straight black men. Like you got this great relationship with former um, professional athletes and they all happen to be black. We like it, but can you diversify your referrals? It works both ways. You notice how I gave you examples. Like I'm moving through the examples quickly, fluidly because I live and breathe DNI. DNI to me is not just about putting black and brown people in. It's about making sure we are looking who is overlooked in your country. DNI is going to probably be different than what DNI looks like for us here in North America. Yours might be around uh, migrant workers. It may be around um, indigenous individuals. It may be more of a caste system. So yours is going to look a little bit differently than mine. The question, the, 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 the seminal question for all of us is who's overlooked, who's missing. And what are we doing to, to support or not undergird their being overlooked? That's probably the better way to do it. So I think a referral program is absolutely a part of the equation. And if we find that it gets abused or that it's not netting the result we need, you scrap it. 
That's what business is about. We don't, we're not married to anything, especially if it's not serving us well in our purpose. Awesome. Um, another conversation I've been having recently is around uh, conscious or subconscious bias. So, and that's more in the screening process. Um, but I don't have an answer for this. I just more want your thoughts on, there's more a human behavior, but especially on the subconscious level, like how do we tackle that in the diversity sense? Like how can people get rid of that problem, so to speak? Um, again, I, I'm, it's a bit of a washy question there. So um, that's because I'm not quite sure the direction we're gonna go. No worry, uh, my direction is head on. I don't believe in unconscious bias. I know that there is academic support for it. There are journalistic studies that have been done so when I say I don't believe in it, do understand that I'm smart enough to understand that on my left and my right in my hands, it, you know, figuratively or uh, figuratively, I'm holding, you know, documentation to support that. Here's where I argue, Ben. I argue when I say, uh, and, and forgive me because my examples may be more North American leaning, but I think you'll get the point. I argue when I say, if you are a white woman, and you are approaching me on the street, I'm six foot, 240 pounds, you know, depends on what day it is. I might look like a football player or something, whatever, something like that, you know, <laughs> something like that. But, but if you clutch your handbag because you see me coming, you consciously clutched your handbag. It, in my case, if I see people on... Uh, motorbikes or in pickup trucks and they have a confederate flag in the window I tend to say uh, that's probably not a person that I'm trying to deal with what I'm getting at in these examples is more often than not Ben the bias that we are exhibiting is a conscious we know that we're doing that you know that you clutched your handbag I know that I'm I'm reticent about that confederate flag and anything that goes along with it. You know that you are closing the elevator door when you see a person in a wheelchair trying to get in the elevator. You know that you are discarding people's resumes because of the last name or because of their zip code or because of the school that they went to or the uh, fraternity or sorority group that they belong to. You, the part of the country that they come from, you know that you are doing these things. So for me, I always feel like when we talk about unconscious bias and some of these other things, all we're doing, Ben, honestly, is we're just simply saying it's okay for you to continue to do the things that you're doing. It, it, it's all right. You know, we, we're coddling, we're coddling that complacency, that mediocrity. And I don't want to do that. So for me, I just call it out, like straight up. You need to stop doing what you're doing. But we put measures in place to mitigate that. Uh, what an answer. That's that. That is what I was looking for from this podcast. It's like challenging that status quo. So that's absolutely right. Awesome. Awesome. Um, related to this as well, uh, employer brand. So um, just another conversation I've heaps around and, you know, folks are trying to find their, their voice in the market, so to speak. And then, of course, this topic comes up. Um, so how, how, do, how do you intertwine the two? Do you, do you have much experience around how you show representation of the diverse groups within your company um, or, or any comments more broadly around employer brand? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is it works both ways. If you are inside of an organization that doesn't have diversity, well, it's kind of hard for you to show it. 
And so I don't encourage an organization to fake it by investing in stock photos and, you know, other things that paint a picture of something that is not. I say that's an opportunity for you to share with the world that I'm working on this. Here's our current leadership team. Something's missing. And we want to address that something. I think it's awesome for us to be able to be genuine, authentic, and honest in how we represent ourselves through our messaging, be it employer brand, be it uh, marketing or some combination of both. So for me, uh, they absolutely go hand in hand. And that's the reason why I think it's extremely important. If you're going to put together a robust and honest diversity and inclusion effort, then you should be checking for DNI at every value point inside of the organization. So it's not just a uh, uh, sourcing and recruiting thing. It's looking at the onboarding process. It's looking at the hiring managers in our supplier diversity and our corporate social responsibility and our learning and development and our board governance, board directors, it's logistics, supply. Every value point in the organization, we should be checking for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which is why Ben, last thing that I'll say, there's no finish line in this work. Like I shouldn't be trying to check a box and say, okay, great. You know, I did it. No, we are doing it. No matter what, we are doing it. If you care about people, then diversity and inclusion don't have a finish line. Okay, can I bring it to life with a personal example? So where I work, sure. at, where I work at the moment in a day job, it's fantastic. It's thought about, it's discussed, and it's represented. So, but in a past job, I was on a leadership team, and now we struggled. We struggled big time. But I knew the people, I knew them as human beings, and I knew there wasn't an intent problem. But I can tell you now, when we tried to bring it up and have discussions, it was difficult without a leader, if that makes sense. So no uh, DNI uh, thought leader internally or something like that. So the intent was there, but it was proved really hard. And i tell you what the trigger moment was. Putting the images of the leadership team on the company website. Really small thing. That's it. And... Yeah. and I was like, no, there's no way we're putting that up. I was like, that shows a big problem for me. And it's not because we want to hide who we are. It's because we haven't solved this very well. So so just so you know, we ended up not putting the images on because um, transparently, we didn't want 80% white males. Like it's like, which was disproportionate as it, as it is relative to society. Um, I suppose where, where I'm going with that is, and that's um, that, that company is great and has since tackled that. But where I'm going with this is, if I had my time again, what, what should I have done? One, we weren't scared of the difficult conversation, but we were uneducated on what to do. So is that the point where you get external help in? If, you, if you're not afraid of the conversation or what would be your advice? Because I bet my bottom dollar, there are 20, 30, 50, 100 size employee companies who are big enough where they, they have to tackle this, but they don't quite know how to do it yet. So what's, what's any advice you've got around that? Yeah, I'm going to first of all address the first piece of what you said. They were well-meaning individuals. Okay, well, well-meaning hasn't necessarily served us well either. So again, I need, uh, and my signature keynote for 2021 is less allyship, more action. Yeah. So, you know, in that instance, in that example, you should have absolutely brought in an external force to help out. I would also 
go as far as to say if you had, you know, um, diverse employees or um, black, brown, people with disabilities, if you had them on your team, you should have, you all as leaders should have consulted with them. You know, how do we change part of this conversation? How do we project it in an honest and genuine way and query some of their their commentary? You know, you may not have operated on it, but at least allowed their voice to be heard. You, you've allowed their voices to be heard. Do you understand what that would do for them? Like if we move out of the boardroom and through the ranks of our organization, asking them how do we, how they would suggest that we contribute to a representation, their voice is being heard. It changes the pep in my step. It makes me say, wait a minute, I think the organization cares more about this and me, and maybe I want to be more productive. Maybe I want to stop looking for a job because I was looking, because you have no idea what that's going to do for that in person when you unlock their voice. So I think the two things that could have been done in that past experience, unlock the employee, the internal employee voice and externally bring in a person like me. See, that's, that's brilliant. And the reason I wanted to share is because it wasn't a proud moment for me. I'm not taking action. And I think that the more you own these things and, and I was younger in my career too. So a bit, bit older, wiser now and stuff like that. But I think I want to openly talk about it because if I don't openly call it out, I'm not, I'm not going to address it again. Do you know what I mean? And sure. I am a mid thirties white male. I know exactly where I, I know the benefits I've had in life. So it's like, it's about calling that out from my point of view as well. Um, cool. All right. Sorry. I want to talk about your book. If that's all right. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. old, it's old, but we can talk about it. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, no, let me, t- let me tell you why, because, um, uh, so, uh, rest in peace, the resume. Um, so yeah, actually it's ripped the resume. No, I didn't destroy your acronym. Did I? <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. I was looking for it on my shelf. It's on another shelf, but there you rip, are. rip the resume, but that's what it is. It's, it's not so much so rest in peace. It's really around rip the resume in half and let me give you timeless principles that you can use to build not only a solid document, but a solid interview conversation. So that, so I so I haven't read the book and I, I know for right. my sins, it's like, yeah, so I'm not I'm not gonna, you know, I listen to podcasts all the time and these guys they they, they read all the books and stuff like that. And we, we one of the things I was impressed by you is of all the people I've reached out to, especially topics, you were like, no, let's just get straight into it straight away. And it happened so quick. So thank you for that. What it did do was I read as much as possible across the internet about it. And I liked you confronted the norms, like it like is the way with yours. Um so this question, I wasn't sure in my mind when I was thinking about it, but like your book is for guidance for um, that side of things around resumes and that. So what would you say to TA practitioners around the resume, CV, whatever you want to call it, and how, you know, it's changed around interviews like now with videos and people dropping video interviews in and stuff like that. Like what's, what's the future for, for resumes and what have you? Just more broadly, I'm just interested based on your writing. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I don't, I don't know, but if I had a silver ball or crystal ball, as they would say, Ben, I think that the resume will always have some place in the process. What I think is going to be different is how we digest that resume. 
how we take, how we experience the resume. That's the better way to say it. So now it's uploaded to a site or sent across via email. And occasionally someone hands it to a person if they're at like a recruiting event, a career fair. I think as we continue to adopt AR and VR technology and we are, are looking at more wearable devices, if you will, I think the resume is going to manifest and be something that in many ways, I'm just going to see like literally right now, as I'm on camera with you, uh, there's just some sort of technology that allows it to just simply appear on the screen while you and I are talking right now. And it's coming from the cloud or it's coming from some, I just feel like the digital experience or how we experience the resume is going to be a bit more fluid, a bit more, um, I'm using the word, I, I know I'm not going to say this the right way, evaporative. Like, I just feel like it's it's going to be there and then it's not. It's yeah. not going to be this physical thing that I need to, to kind of stare at. Like, you'll be able to share with me just a, give me a five-year snapshot of your, you know, professional experience. I don't need all 20 years. Yeah. Give me five. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? So I just think yeah. that we are going to, experience that document differently than we do today now awesome i, I would always wonder like our, what would be our grandchildren's generation if they'll uh make light of the resume as it is today so it's no. um come yeah. on did, did you did you know what a walk you're in your 30s so yeah. did you know what a walkman was yeah i did actually i just just okay. about, you yeah. knew what a walkman was okay got it. Yeah. So okay. Just, okay. I, okay i just cross over with cassette tapes and stuff like okay. that okay so, there you go but, there you go yeah, yeah. no you're right you're right so there's that story around the the child who um once uh, doesn't know what the uh, they see a floppy disk and yeah. they're like why have you got an enlarged save icon on your desk which is good hey um, as, as we as we begin to wind down in the last 10 meters i, I want to give you like an open forum on your final thoughts around DNI. So I just want to hand the mic over to you. Our audience, as a reminder, is sort of HR leadership, TA practitioners and leaders, uh, mainly from in-house. What do you want to impress upon them from a DNI perspective um, that will sort of help make a change, I suppose is what I'm looking for. The wounds of honor are often self-inflicted. Honor is something that each of us is born with. Honor is something that cannot be given. Honor is something that cannot be taken. Honor is something that must only not be lost. It was said by Morgan Freeman in the movie, The Last Night on Netflix. The wounds of honor are often self-inflicted. Honor is something that each of us is born with. When we hit that workplace, we come to such with honor. If we are true, we come to such with honor. Honor is something that cannot be given. I can't give you any of my honor, Ben, and vice versa. You can't give me any of yours. But if I am true to the space that I am in, then I'm going to do everything that I can to represent this space well. People say that there's a low barrier to entry for recruiters or you don't have to go to school to be a recruit. You know, they, they do all types of things to minimize the work, the profession that I absolutely love. And what I say to people is, show me an incredible organization with a terrible recruiting team and terrible employees. 
we are an important aspect of this situation. We put together and build high-performing teams. Honor is something that can't be taken. You can't take it away from me. I just have to be responsible and not lose it. I must not lose it because I am showing bias. I'm showing favoritism. I'm building and erecting systems in my workplace that's screening out talented individuals because they don't fit what I think should be in my culture. They don't move the way that we move. No, whatever. If you are caring about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, you're willing to forensically look at all of your policies and your procedures. You're willing to hold human resources accountable. There's no reason why the Me Too movement was as bad as it was here in the US if HR wasn't complicit. Human resource people were complicit. They were sweeping, they were sweeping uh, 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 allegations and claims under the carpet. They weren't protecting the women that were in their workplace. That's a loss of honor. That's a loss of honor. So when you ask me, what is it that I want to leave them with? I want to leave them with an understanding that I'm never going to lose my honor. No matter where you see me in this world, I'm never going to lose my honor. I say often, and I'll say till I die, the ROI of DNI is greater humanity. I just want you to be better humans. Tony, that's been such an inspirational interview. Thank you so, so much for joining us this week. And um, I really do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart.